Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The military has long had a special relationship with the Jeep, specifically the World War II Jeep. In 1940, the Army was taking bids for a new military vehicle and settled on a design by the Willys Overland Company that would be produced by Ford. How it got its name? The common belief is that it comes from the abbreviation of GP, which was a common term for any military vehicle. For more on how the Jeep became America's favorite military vehicle, we'll speak to Miranda Summers Lowe, contributor to Task and Purpose. Well, first of all, it really is amazing how much uh, the, the Jeep is just beloved, iconic, right? For a piece of equipment, um, the Jeep has really remained just something that not just military personnel, but all Americans know about and, and have this affection for. Definitely. They have their own um, special Jeep wave when they when uh, <laughs> Jeep owners drive by each other. Well, and you know it's sort of something that that people stick with, right? Like once you become a a Jeep person, exactly. um, just kind of incredible in that. Um, in researching this, you know, to find out how many different possibilities there could have been for the Jeep, um, kind of starting in World War One when cars and vehicles first come on the market. And, you know, of course, there are different groups of people that want different things. You know, do you want a big truck that can carry a lot of things? Um, you know, do you want a small car that, you know, is, is fast? Or do you want something that is kind of, um, you know, all terrain and can move through a lot of things? So there's like a lot of contention sort of going through as this gets developed, including some of my personal favorites, like, you know, there were so many carts that were being pulled by horses at that point. So, you know, why not just make a, a cart that moves on its own and kind of looks like a lawnmower or, you know, when you, you go to shoot or, you know, a lot of these operations, you lie down on your belly. So, you know, sort of one rejected concept was, 
nicknamed the belly flopper. And it was sort of like a, a motorized pallet that you'd lie down on. And then, you know, as the soldier moved from position to position, the, the whole vehicle would just move with it. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, along the way, right? So it took all these little inspirations from those things, like you said uh, in the article, tractors and lawnmowers, this belly flopper thing. It took all of those inspirations and it kind of started becoming, you know, the Jeep, uh, you know, it, it met all the, the requirements, the criteria that the, the military needed at the time. Let's talk a little bit about the name Jeep, too, because that's a pretty fun part. As you mentioned, it almost was called the belly flopper. There's all sorts of different things to it. Uh, they called it, uh, let's see, blitz buggy, puddle jumper, midget, peep. And uh, probably where it really came from, I guess uh, you mentioned World War One grease monkeys had a term for military vehicles, GP, and that's probably where it came from. Yeah, so GP, you know, general purpose, uh, kind of runs together like Jeep, and that nickname seems to be around before the particular truck we talk about. Um, but one thing I learned researching the story is that term got used for a lot of other things, like um, aircraft, which I hadn't realized even through World War II, uh, some members of the Army Air Corps refused to call the Jeep a Jeep because they had a plane that they called Jeep. So they called them peeps, like the little marshmallow snack. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, and in, in, in inside the military, I guess they were going back and forth on, uh, on you know which one was the right one, which would they, what they would call it. When they finally, the military said, okay, we want to manufacture these things, uh, I guess they said, uh, you know, we're going to give out this contract to whoever can do it. There was 135 automakers uh, at that time only two agreed to submit proposals. So right away, that limited right there. And uh, I guess they wanted 70 vehicles to be produced in just 75 days. So that's really tough, probably why a lot of them backed out. But tell us who came through with the, the final design here. Sure. So, yeah, you got to appreciate how quickly this came together that when they finally decided it was worth kind of doing, you know, a, a small truck that we kind of think of as being a Jeep now, um, two different companies put in proposals, so the Bantam Company and uh, Willys Overland. And at that point, Willys um, was well known to the Army because they made a lot of um, artillery carts and carriages, but, you know, wouldn't necessarily be who you would think um, would make this vehicle. But um, once there were two prototypes, the uh, Bantam and, and the Willys, it kind of became clear that um, even though the Willys came in, proposal came in late, and uh, overweight because they had put an oversized engine in it uh, in field testing. The oversized engine did fantastic, um, and everyone was loving it. But the problem with that is Willys didn't actually have the capacity to make the number of, of trucks that the Army was hoping for. So, you know, in, in one of those great moments of history, there's a, a chance meeting in Washington, D.C., where one of the um, undersecretaries who was working on this, undersecretaries of the Army, saw Edsel Ford himself and asked if he would, you know, agree to a special deal where Ford would, you know, agree to help Willys produce this. So a yeah. lot of the original Jeeps have that Willys label on it, but we're actually um, made by Ford. Yeah, that's amazing. And and carries on to this day, right? There are still certain model trims of the Jeep that go by the Willys name. You can see them, uh, you know, sometimes you'll see it. It'll say Rubicon on the front, 
on the hood, but sometimes they'll sell, say willies on them too. So they're all there. And and then from then on, you know, just kind of uh, how do you get it funded? Uh, part of this whole thing is uh, there's a lot of great classic pictures that you have on the article on the website showing the Jeep from, you know, when it started in World War II and beyond and the Jeep driving on, on the Capitol steps, you know, how it plays into pop culture. There was a bunch of songs about it, Four Jills in a Jeep and movies. You know, it really took off after that. Absolutely. And one of the funnest things I found um, when I went to, you know, I saw that picture of, um, you know, the army came, they actually put Jeeps out in front of the Capitol building and they gave members of Congress the chance to drive it up and down the Capitol steps. But it was hard to pick which picture because it was just uh, there were so many. It was obvious that um, even at that point, before it was in mass production, every, you know, senator and congressman who got to drive this um, was just having a blast and got their picture <laughs> yeah. taken. Yeah, I think the picture you ended up putting in there was Senator Meade of New York, and uh, he's just like waving back the camera with his hand up, big smile on his face, and <laughs> we had uh, a few service members in the back seat, uh, and it definitely, definitely looks like fun. And, and, you know, just kind of this whole trajectory, right? It just uh, uh, really was being used, I guess, you know, for military purposes too, but just like the service members coming back home, so did the Jeep. And, you know, it obviously has its big history now in the, in the States and all, but it came back and went back to its tractor roots, pulling threshers and plows and was used to be converted for like uh, mini firefighting trucks so that, you know, it got a, a ton of use. Yeah, it's incredible to see what they were used for over time. Everything from two Jeeps hooked up could pull a tank, like when it was still in military use. But then you see them showing up, as you mentioned, um, as firefighting equipment, um, in logging and farming. Um, just really kind of incredible how versatile it is. Yeah, really fun look. I'm a fan of the Jeep itself, but, uh, you know, just to know how the roots started and all this is pretty fun. Miranda Summers Lowe, contributor to Task and Purpose. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. 
The condiment business is hyper-competitive, and one of the major players in the spice game, McCormick, has been making acquisitions to take over the world of hot sauce. They bought Frank's Red Hot and Cholula hot sauce in deals worth millions of dollars each. The past few years have proved to be beneficial for McCormick, as many people stayed in and cooked at home more, but they were not immune to supply chain issues that affected the industry. For more on the fight for hot sauce supremacy, we'll speak to Austin Carr, Features writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. Uh, McCormick, known for all its seasonings and spices and, and those red caps that you see in your, your grandparents' pantry. But in recent years, they've really going after the sauce market. And yeah, French's, they also own Stubbs Barbecue, they own Old Bay, and they also develop a lot of products for other companies. If you've ever had uh, Cool Ranch Doritos yeah. or Bud Light Lime, they were the, the company behind that, that flavor t- development. But with hot sauce specifically and their purchase of, of Frank's Red Hot and Cholula Hot Sauce, that's really going after the, the big, huge growth in the global uh, hot sauce market. In the last six or seven years, we've seen global hot sauce sales rise about 54% to about $5 billion uh, around the planet. Uh, in the U.S. specifically, it's actually the, the, the hot sauce market is roughly on par as of, the, as of last year with ketchup, which is pretty shocking. One would think Heinz ketchup, those sort of major sales are bigger than hot sauce. But hot sauce is a huge growth industry right now, and that explains why McCormick's really going deep on this this love for for low calorie heat that that's really taken off, especially among uh, millennial consumers. Yeah, and as you mentioned in the in the article, right? I mean, this is uh, all that very hyper competitive business, just the sauce market in general. And uh, I just like the wording, right? To become big hot sauce, you need to fight big ketchup first. You know, referring to Heinz, just because they have such a a huge uh, control over the market with ketchup specifically. But uh, let's talk about uh, these acquisitions that they made because they're very interesting. I want to throw the dollar amounts out there. They first started off with Frank's Red Hot and French's Mustard. That was kind of a combo deal. And then after that, they went after Cholula. So let's start start with Frank's uh, Red Hot. Then let's get into Cholula. Yeah, the, the deal with uh, French's and, and Frank's, that was actually for $4.2 billion. So in, in the food world, those are gigantic prices. You might yeah. hear about that that sort of investment when it comes to the tech world. And so when, when, I, when I talked about these purchases with analysts, they, they really consider, compare these things to the equivalent of, you know, when Facebook bought Instagram. It's, it's sort of the, that level of scale that we're talking in terms of the risk, the bet that they're making on these brands. Then fast forward to November 2020, they decided to go after Cholula Hutt sauce for, and they, they spent about $800 million. And according to our sources, they outbid Heinz for that. Uh, Heinz, of course, you might not realize that they're known for ketchup uh, and a ton of, you know, the Heinz sort of 57 brand, but they also own Grey Poupon, A1, Miracle Whip, if you like uh, Lee and Perrin's Worcestershire sauce. You know, they're sort of this arsenal portfolio player in the sauce market, and we're interested in hot sauce just as much as McCormick, but the McCormick put up more money, they bought Cholula, and now they control about a third of the U.S. hot sauce market yeah. between Frank's, which is number one, and Cholula, which is now number two ahead of Tabasco. It's just nuts, really. And, you know, the the people that were at McCormick's that were trying to get this deal going, they said, hey, you know, we want to go big. We want to do this. They got approval for everybody. They said, go for it. And what was the deal? It was $800 million was the bid that they put down? $800 million, uh, cash cash offer. So, this was really a, a deal that was designed to stop a bidding war from happening. In other words, you don't want Heinz counteroffering, you know, and so by, by put, throwing out this big offer, you're not going to see another one countering at a billion or two billion. You know, Cholula sells about $100 million of hot sauce a year. So already the multiple there is pretty big. 
at least in the food world. Um, so this was really a big deal. And since then, they have seen a lot of growth. McCormick has huge distribution channels with restaurants around the country, uh, with retailers like Walmart and Amazon. And so for them to sort of go from take this Cholula, which is was owned by a private equity firm and you know wasn't a portfolio play beforehand, and now throw it into all these restaurants, whether that's in bottles or in what are called sachets. Those are those little squeeze packs you see when you tear them open and pour it on your, your, your chicken wings or fries. And uh, you're going to see that a lot more in the coming years, especially in grocery stores. That's why I love these stories, right? You kind of uh, uh, grow to love certain brands. And then, yeah, you start seeing it in certain restaurants and you're seeing it everywhere. And you kind of don't know the history behind it. And, and in some cases, who makes uh, or who owns these properties, right? Because for Cholula specifically, McCormick's doesn't put any of their branding on it, which is, I mean, it's probably smart on their side, right? They just want to keep it in the minds of the consumers. This has always been Cholula. It comes from Mexico, all this stuff. So they don't even put their branding on there. That's correct. And, and, and that's actually, a, it's a pretty smart branding opportunity. I mean, when you think about it, you go to the grocery store, you look at that huge shelf of condiments and sauces uh, and dressings, and you're really choosing not just the taste, but also sort of the memory of that brand. The, the sort of dispensing mechanism is very important. How the bottle looks, the cap. That's why with, with Cholula, a lot of people know it as much for the flavor of that sort of spicy sauce uh, that sort of goes with anything flavor, but they also know it for that distinctive wooden cap, yep. the, the sort of slender glass bottle. And if you look at a lot of the other big companies, you know, we think of Hellman's Mayo, you know that blue and white jar, but you might not know it's owned by Unilever. You know, Sir Kensington, which is sort of fancy mayo and ketchup, also owned by Unilever. And with, you know, uh, you could think of Hunt's Ketchup, Golden's Mustard, Wishbone Dressing for Ranch. Those are all owned by ConAgra, another big food giant. So a lot of these companies out there, they realize the benefit of making these products almost seem like independent, family-run, bespoke brands when there are actually these sort of giant food conglomerates <laughs> that are sort of partnering up. So when you go to a ski resort or a, a buffet line, you see their brands all together at the end of the uh, the food aisle rather than Kraft or Unilever or McCormick or ConAgra. They're all going after each other for those mix of flavors that they want consumers to lust after. Sure. And, and as you mentioned earlier, right, McCormick's had its hand in making, developing other things, Bud Light Lime and Cool Ranch Doritos. What am I favorite ones too. I had Absolutely. no 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 clue they had a hand in that. I did want to talk about the pandemic, supply chains and COVID, all that, because that's an interesting thing too. They were seeing a lot of increase in sales at US stores. Obviously people were cooking at home, needed to stock up their pantries. They did have all these deals with restaurants and some of that dried up, but the sales for grocery stores was increasing so much. And then they ran into the supply chain issues for a lot of their stuff. Turmeric, which they need for the mustard. Just a ton of different things on the uh, different angles on this front. So tell us about that. It was a really fascinating thing. I mean, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, rewind the clock. I know it's, it's been so many years at this point, but back to that February, March period when no one quite knew how big of a threat the COVID-19 situation would be. And for McCormick, they're seeing restaurants close. They're seeing factories close. And, and this could be a really disruptive force in their industry. But then the opposite happened. All of a sudden, as you noted, sales of turmeric, which a lot of people use for, for health reasons or because it's what gives the yellow color to, to spicy yellow mustard and French's, broth, because people are cooking soup at home, baked goods like vanilla, all these things taking off. So at, at this real whiplash moment for McCormick, where they have to keep up with the demand at the same time as all these factories are closing, it was a real crazy few months uh, going on to a year. And specifically with turmeric, 
the U.S. almost ran out of mustard for a time. Uh, they were running low on their reserves for some of the ingredients like turmeric that goes into French's, partly because ocean freight, all those ocean freighters were either not running or closed down or over capacity. So they actually had to rush an emergency air cargo shipment of turmeric, and it landed inadvertently in Baltimore instead of at a French's factory in Missouri. So they had to hire all these truckers overnight to drive it a thousand miles to the French's factory in time for a production run. Otherwise, uh, who knows, we might not have mustard on our, <laughs> our hot dog, which sounds small, but for right. a lot of people, these are comfort foods. And, and that was a big deal during the pandemic, especially if you're your parents with kids at home and you got to keep them entertained with food. Yeah. I, I mean, that sucks for, you know, McCormick's the parent company at this point for all of this it sucks for them to have to go through that. But I, man, I kind of love hearing that, you know, the scramble, right? For consumers, we don't really know what's going on. You might hear there's a shortage of this or that, but this was the scramble to get people the products that they know and love and want. So what's next for McCormick's, at least with uh, this growth potential into hot sauces and other sauces and all these acquisitions they're looking for? What's next for them? You know, I think what's next is now that they have this massive buildup of brands that are all owned by the same company, but seemingly run independently, at least when it comes to grocery sales, you're going to see a lot more mashups. You know, um, Heinz, for example, they're (laughs) they're doing a lot of mashup products, and it's not just ketchup anymore, but they mix it with, you know, all types of, uh, I think they have ketchup, so, uh, you know, Heinz ketchup, they have mayo chop, honey racha, tar chop, cranch, so it sort of blends of ketchup and ranch dressing and uh, sriracha and, and, and so forth. <laughs> Buffer and Ranch you're gonna see was one of <laughs> Buffer Ranch, another yeah. one, a part of what Heinz calls their innovation agenda. And so uh, what you might see in the, the coming years are perhaps some mashups between Cholula and French's. So you have a sort of spicier mustard or, you know, Old, Old Bay, uh, which is that popular Baltimore seafood seasoning that's mixed with hot sauce these days, very popular. And so maybe there's going to be more of that. And so the question is, how far do you take that before it sort of ruins some of the brand cachet? Do you want Cholula showing up on Taco Bell menus at McDonald's and so forth? On the other hand, I think a lot of people might like that stuff because, you know, everyone's hungry and and, uh, these types of products, they can really go on anything. Yeah, I mean, those sauce mashups really uh, can be intriguing and uh, a pleasant surprise when it really works with, you know, whatever you're dipping in, uh, chicken wings, whatever it can be. So, yeah, it's just a fun story. There's a lot of details about McCormick's and some of their history we couldn't get into for this. But I suggest everybody read Austin's piece on all of it. Austin Carr, features writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And if your listeners have a chance, I know one product that McCormick was really proud of in terms of a mashup was French's flavored craft beer and French's flavored ice cream. And they're, they're convinced it's a big flavor out there. So uh, go try it if you're curious. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Austin. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.